from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello out there in Radio Land. It is I. We are back. I know you guys missed us last week, but we couldn't go too, too far along. And, okay, so... I'm lonely today in the studio. I mean, I've, I have the camaraderie of Rob the Engineer, who is a now big-time Bravo TV star. And, of course, uh, Eric Thomas, our producer, is in the cage with Rob the Engineer. Uh, we've also got on the line, uh, joining us from the home of the Mass Holes, he is our Bay Stater in residence. And coming from a city of diversity, uh, as Rob pointed out, we've only got four segments, but they've got six yacht clubs up there in Marblehead. He's Rich Rabino. Hello, Rich. Oh, hello. I love the introduction. Yeah. That needs to be copyrighted. We're, we're going to have to work on this. And, of course, if there's background noise, that means that somebody's probably on the Beltway driving to do call-in, which we appreciate. And I'm guessing it's probably on his way from New York City back to the national capital region. He is the former Joe Biden political operative and attorney in the great state of Maryland, District of Columbia. He is the one we know as uh, Dan Lipner Esquire. Daniel, whereabouts are you? I literally just drove through Elijah Cummings uh, District. And oh. I got to tell you, uh, I don't know what the horse talking about. Did, did you did you see any rats? Not a one. Not a one. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to know because that's a great segue into uh, our first segment. So, forty-five mile, about forty-five miles north of Washington D.C. is the biggest city in Maryland. Uh, it has great, great attractions. The home of the Baltimore Orioles, home of the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, you've got all kinds of uh, great seafood, but if you're Donald Trump, apparently it is a corrupt asshole of a place that has had billions of dollars stolen by the likes of uh, the congressman of that district in Maryland, one Elijah Cummings. Uh, this started as a a Twitter war and has quickly escalated into something at best unseemly, at worst, uh, insulting to America's intelligence. Um, it all started when Elijah, when uh, the acting secretary of Homeland Security, Kevin McElhinney, uh, did an appearance in front of the House Homeland Security Committee, of which, uh, I'm sorry, the House Oversight Committee, uh, which of which... Chairman Elijah Cummings of Maryland is the chairman of said committee. Chairman Cummings was not very receptive to the talking points of the Secretary of Homeland Security. Now then, let, let me just be clear on one thing. Uh, I am very supportive of the secretary, uh, the acting secretary, rather. He's got a tough job. Uh, everybody knows that I'm very supportive of Customs and Border Protection, Border Patrol. I have a lot of friends that work there. I've worked with them in many years past and previous lives. Uh, it is a tough job, and it has only been made tougher over the past couple of years. So let me just get that out there. The reality, though, is uh, Chairman Cummings was very, very confrontational with the Secretary of Homeland Security. 
uh, talking about the conditions in the holding areas down along the southern border. That can that got uh, that got the president into a tizzy, where he then uh, call he then put out that um, Representative Cummings had been a brutal bully, shouting and screaming at at a great man, and ta- and shouting and screaming about the women men and women of Border Patrol. Uh, President Trump also called Cummings district quote. A disgusting rat and rodent-infested mess. He further went on, said, "Quote: If he spent more time in Baltimore, maybe he could help clean up this very dangerous and filthy place." Unquote. Well, that stirred up a hornet's nest, and instead of because you know our our president being President Trump, the way he is, he then decides it's a good idea to escalate this, and. It just turned into what we have today, which is now this morning on the walkout to Marine One, which has become a neat little presser for the president. Uh, the gaggle asked him about the comments, and he doubled down. In fact, he even went on to say that you know the the uh, the billions of dollars that the federal government has spent in that district apparently has been stolen by the likes of Chairman Elijah Cummings. Uh, This has turned into something just completely, completely uh, beneath, in my opinion, beneath the office of the presidency. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and and start off because you're driving through said congressional district, Dan. I've never seen anything like this, and I just don't, I I can't even explain this. Dan, help me out here. So there are a bunch of things. So Baltimore is most certainly a city that's had its own troubles, and it's still a city that, while it's having a bit of a renaissance, it's not having as much of a renaissance today. New York City is having with the gentrification that's going on up there, or even Washington D.C. But Baltimore has had a bit of a renaissance, but it's still a working class city that still has economic challenges for some of its population. Said the, the president going after Elijah Cummings in such a way has a bunch of political questions, especially considering there are two other uh, committee chairmen that are investigating of the president and the president's people, uh, and that being Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler, uh, neither of which have been a target of President Trump in this way. Um, so the suggestion that this is a racist attack, considering that there is a pretty long list of people who have more melanin in their skin that also happen to be Democrats, uh, that the president seems to be going after with significant more zeal, uh, calls into question exactly what this president's motives are. Add to that. Well, Dan, um, Dan, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me ask this question is, if you can explain to me what the president's motives is on this, I'll give you 100 bucks right now. I can only repeat what others are suggesting, that the president is trying to solidify his base. Uh, that said, I don't know how any more solidified and concrete they can become 
aside from goose stepping down Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, those folks are pretty locked in. So, Rich Rubino, I mean, the accusation of the president being racist. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look at both sides here as moderator. It, it, it seems to me that the opponents of the president are also very quick to point out the fact that, you know, A, uh, supporters of the president say that there there is problems and there have been problems in large urban areas. Baltimore is just one example of it. But opponents are quick to draw the racism card. Is is this, in fact, racism or is it, in fact, uh the politicalization of a very difficult situation that happens to be 45 miles north of the capital. Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think it's more it's more racial opportunism. I don't know whether the president's a racist or not. I think he's an opportunist. I think just like as I always make the analogy, George Wallace, first time he ran for governor of Alabama, had the support of NAACP. Ran against a segregationist, a segregationist won. Next time around, he became a segregationist, and that became his political career. That became, you know, the catalyst to really spark his presidential runs was the fact he was a segregationist. In Donald Trump's case, I think he's using this. I think he sees white grievances specifically um, in, terms of, in terms of middle America, and he sees this as a way to get to people in Ohio and Pennsylvania who perhaps are having economic troubles or what perhaps – you know, he wants to see, he wants to kind of sew up, you know, racial resentment. I mean, if, he, if this was just about, you know, Elijah Cummings district, first of all, I think what he's getting at is the idea that, you know, people are saying, well, why are we paying for, you know, all this welfare? And they're saying, oh, well, they happen to be in places like Baltimore. All oh, that happens to be represented by an African-American, just like he went after the squad. You know, he's trying to, I think he's trying to tether the rest of the Democratic Party to defend what he would consider outliers, whether it, whether it's AOC, um, whether it's whether it's Congresswoman Omar, Congressman Presley. Um, Congressman Deeb, he's trying to make it so that Nancy Pelosi and the establishment of the Democratic Party, rather than trying to move to the center, because in 2018, they won the House of Representatives not by moving to the left, but by moving to the center, running on issues like health care, not necessarily even running on impeachment. So that's what I think he's basically trying to do. But now on the substance of this, if you're going to go after Elijah Cummings district, then you should also go after the state of Kentucky. Um, you know, the 25 most poorest counties in the entire country uh, of those 25, 10 of them are in the state of Kentucky, which happens to be represented by House Mitch. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And if you look at the, the second poorest congressional district in the country, is also the, is also the congressional district, the best, the second the congressional district where perhaps President Trump did the best of the entire country, and that's Harold Rogers district, this member of the Appropriations Committee, where Trump garnered 80% of the vote. And that is a vet, that, the income level of in, in that congressional district is a lot lower than the income level in, in Elijah Cummings' congressional district. So, you know, it's, it's, if, if Republicans continue to make the case, for example, that Democrats are in control of all these big cities and therefore that's why they're in poverty, then, well, the Democrats can make the same case that, the, that Republicans are in control of a lot of these rural areas in places like Kentucky, and they're also in poverty. I think that my own view is that I don't think it matters who particularly the leaders are. It's just that there are rural areas and there are urban areas, and I think he's trying to divide them in many respects. And you have to ask a question, why in places like Kentucky are, do, so many Demo do so many conservative Democrats, Republicans, vote against their self-interest? I think part of it, perhaps, the Trump, Mr. Trump is trying, to, trying to, is trying to make the case that, you know, that is trying to make the case that perhaps these, the folks in the, 
the folks in the rural areas should be angry at the folks in the, in the urban areas. But, you know, I think that right. you know, folks like Martin Luther King tried to do, if the white working class and the and the African-American um, working class and Latinos ever came together, they would, have one quite, they would have one hell of a coalition, and it would not be for Donald Trump. But right. they don't necessarily have that because he divides them on issues right. like this. Dan Lipner, I mean, Rich brings up a really good point. You know, the, the Democrats are quick to draw the racism card, which doesn't help anybody, in my opinion. But at the same time, Rich brings up the fact that if you look at Dollar for dollar, if you want to talk about abject poverty, start looking in your own backyard, i.e. Hal Rogers District. You start looking at, uh, as he pointed out, uh, the Senate Majority Leader has 25 of the poorest counties in the country in his in his statewide jurisdiction. Why yeah, aren't yeah. the Why aren't yeah, the Democrats? Places where the mortality rate for working class white people is now higher than working class black people in other parts of the country. So this is, if you want to talk about people who have hardships, yeah, it's really their backyard. Not only are they poor, they're dying. So yeah, this is the thing. But, but, and, but Dan, hold on, hold on for a second. Let me ask this question. Why aren't the Democrats playing that card instead of going quick to the racism card? Well, this is the problem, because if you just point that out, you're now alienating those same folks and in the yep. hopes of having those working-class white voters vote Democrat and actually bringing them to the fold and say, listen, you know, that pesky little Obamacare that, that you know, Donald Trump was trying that you are provided. And there's all sorts of crazy poll numbers out there when you talk about Obamacare those same voters think it sucks, but if you say it's, yeah, we got a bad connection on. Yeah, I think Dan, I think we got a bad connection on you. Uh, let, let's let's get you into a better signal. Hold on. I hope the uh, I hope the rats didn't eat the telephone line. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but Rich Rubino, again, I'm going to pose the question to you. It, it, it seems logical to me that you know. The Democrats, if they really wanted to prepare themselves for, especially on a news cycle that's, a, you know, abutting up against their second big two-day debate fest, why wouldn't you just feed back into where uh, it, it feed back into the argument that the that the president's making, saying, "Hey, look, you want to throw rocks." I'm hearing feedback. Yeah, so am I. Uh, I think Dan, we're gonna we're gonna yeah Dan, we're gonna go ahead and uh, cut you loose here for a second because uh, we're getting a lot of feedback from you. We'll see him here shortly. Um, but what we're gonna do is, uh, Rich, I, I want to go back to yeah. the question of why not, especially if you're gonna make inroads, be above it all and start playing you know the same card instead of going up oh, racism. Well, I know. I think that I think that what Dan said was absolutely right. You do not want to alienate this for these folks. You know, you listen to Tim Ryan, for example. He's not garnering much attention in the Democratic debate, but one thing he talks about is the fact that the Democrats have to be a working class party. And part of you know part of the reason that they're not perceived by many 
who are working class, as a working class parties are seen as a coastal party. They're seen as an elite party. And when you go after people and you say, you know, look at all these congressional, you know, you can certainly go after Youngstown, Ohio, for example. And you can say, look at all this poverty that's going on in Youngstown, Ohio. You can say, you know, this has been represented by, you know, Jim Trafficamp and by Tim Ryan. But if you know what, if you keep going after these, eventually, the, eventually, I mean, or I'm sorry, if you can go after parts that are represented by Republicans and go after states like Kentucky, then for some folks in places like Kentucky and Ohio might say, we are playing the elitist card, you're going after the white working class. You know, the Democrats have some chance of getting members of the, of the, of the white working class because that was part of their coalition from FDR through LBJ, they started to leave a lot when, first of all, begin, beginning with McGovern, and they've gradually left the, left the Democratic Party. But with Republicans' case, they have virtually no chance of getting any of getting support in, you know, Maxine's Waters district in, in California, in Elijah Cummings district in Maryland. These are districts that they can concede. You know that, that anyone who's the only problem they potentially could have is there might be people who would be galvanized to come out and vote in those congressional districts that would not vote normally. But certainly in Elijah Cummings district, I mean, you look at it. Maryland's not going to go for a Republican anyway, so we can concede Maryland and go after Maryland. As many voters as come out in Maryland, in Elijah Cummings district, yeah, but, I don't think he really cares. Rich, but in Democrats' district, I'm just going to say in Democrats' cases in places like Ohio, you really don't want to alienate people who are in, who are who are white working class who are. Um, who potentially could vote Democrat in the future. But, but here's the thing, Rich, is, you know, you look at Maryland. You, you've, everybody says you know, how blue it is, yet they have one of the most popular governors in the yeah. country, and that governor, Larry Hogan, is a Republican. Well, uh, you know what, though? Yep. And and, and, and to me, there's, there's a dichotomy. I, I would think that with the number of independent and moderate voters that you get, like in the panhandle, et cetera, uh, those type of voters would be the ones that you'd want to go after and start to uh, start to really try and attract by, you know, you know, by at least defending your home state. Well, you know, it's true that the, it's true that um, can you hear me? Yeah, uh, it's true that Maryland does have a Republican governor. But you know what? This is an odd phenomenon. Why, for example, did Massachusetts have beginning in 1991 from Bill Weld all the way through Mitt Romney ending in 2007? And they currently have a Republican governor now, Charlie Baker, who has a 70 percent job approval rating. Same thing with Maryland, with Larry Hogan. It's a phenomenon when you have and it's different from national politics. When you have state legislator, legislators that are predominantly de- the, uh, the other party, all the Republican has to do is make a case that they're going to be a check, not that they're going to govern as a Republican necessarily, but that they're simply going to be a check on the other party. And once they get in, they have very little power, but they tend to galvanize a lot of support in their um, dis- in their in the, in, the, in those states as governors. Now they go on to run for Senate. I mean, perfect example, Bill Weld, very popular, got reelected in Massachusetts with 71 percent of the vote in 1994. Runs against John Kerry for the Senate in 1990. And the big issue is you're going to be a vote with the Republican majority. He loses that seat. Um, so it's, you can't necessarily translate it to other to other to other offices. That's why I don't think Larry Larry Hogan has nowhere to go other than being the governorship. There's no way he could possibly you know def- win a Senate seat in Maryland because then all of a sudden he becomes he becomes Mitch Mc- he becomes tethered to Mitch McConnell and he's the enabler of Mitch McConnell. But it's just, you see the same thing on the other way side. By the way, you know look at Dave Frudenthal was governor of Wyoming, the most Republican state in the country, and he got reelected in 2006 with 70 percent of the vote as a Democrat in Wyoming. He could never get elected anyplace else. Mike Beebe in Arkansas was elected, extremely popular, got reelected with 66% of the vote, extremely popular governor, but he could never get elected to another to the United States Senate. So I think that's kind of a little bit different. Now, in terms of Maryland, 
There is a, there are two two relatively conservative parts. Certainly, as you get toward Ocean City, that area, and there is a very conservative member, Andy Harris. But that's not really the Maryland that I think most most people think of as Maryland. They think of Elijah Cummings District. They think of the rest of the state. But you know, there's a, there's a different phenomenon getting elected Republican governor versus in the United States Senate. So here's here's where I am bugged, and let's see if we still got Dan. If we can get uh, Dan back on the line. Dan Lipner, if you can hear me, my concern is the lack of Republicans that have spoken out about this. I'll give you a prime example. I remember seeing a oversight committee where uh, I believe it was one of the four of the of uh, one of the four uh, representatives uh, from the uh, from the from the crew accused. Representative Mark Meadows of being a racist. Oh yeah, and, Elijah Cummings came. And, defense, and yeah. I got to tell you something. Elijah Cummings, in front of God and everybody, came to his defense and said, "Absolutely not. I've had a good relationship. You are a good friend. Uh, I do not believe that you are uh, a racist. I, I believe that you are a good, kind-hearted man, open to all views." Yet. When the president goes after Elijah Cummings, where's Mark Meadows? Where, yeah, it's fascinating. Yep. Where's Mark Meadows in all this? I have not seen anybody from the Republican Party stand up for Elijah Cummings after he's the first one to defend him when they're called out as racists or bullies or everything. On it, it, there is such a double standard here that that is just mind blowing. Well, I think he's certainly trepidatious of, 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 President, of President Trump somehow somehow manufacturing a primary opponent against him or there being some sort of a movement. Mark Meadows has had somewhat of a slippery relationship with Donald Trump. He's part of the Freedom Caucus, and they were opposed to, um, to the president's, some of the president's budget proposals from the right, for example. But I think it shows that he's basically a political survivor and a political opportunist. What he did say is something to the effect of he gave a very neutral statement. He said that, I don't think that, you know, I think that the, I think the congressman represents his constituents very well, and I also think the president represents his constituents very well. But it was a very nuanced statement. I'll give you another example, though. And I, uh, when, remember the, uh, when Speaker, uh, sorry, uh, Majority Whip uh, Stephen Scalise was about to become the, the whip, and there, was, there turned out to be that he had spoken before the White Citizens Council. And people were questioning, is he a, is he a racist, is he a racist? His, rep- his, his friend from the Louisiana State Legislature, Cedric C- C- Richmond, who represents New Orleans, came out and defended him and said that he's not necessarily a racist. So that would be another example, you know. I mean, I haven't said that the president has called Congressman Richmond a, a racist, but I'm just saying that's, that's another example. But in this case, Red, I think it shows how fearful he is, Congressman Meadows, of President Trump and the potential of there being some sort of a primary challenge. And I think for him, he weighed his, his loyalty to elect to Representative Cummings versus I think the political um, the political reality and the yeah. political reality is if he goes out, if he contradicts Donald Trump and Donald Trump has a tweet saying you know Mark Meadows is a phony Republican or Mark Meadows is something else then there's going to be a primary opponent against him I, I, I will I will tell you it, it, the, the lack look I as somebody who has dealt with with Chairman Cummings before let me be clear about this Elijah Cummings is a good man do I think that Elijah Cummings is a is a racist? Which President Trump is accused of? No. Can he be aggressive from the chair? Yeah. Do I think he's a bully? Uh, no. But having President Trump call Elijah Cummings a bully 
is pot calling kettle black. Uh, yeah. You have a situation where uh, Chairman Cummings is a uh, uh, an honorable man. He's gone through stuff that none of us, whether no matter what your color, has gone through with the civil is his activities during the civil rights movement and what he's done for his district in Congress is is admirable. But to sit there and first to call accuse him of being a racist and then to have him come out and accuse him, which the president did today on his walk out to Marine One, called Elijah Cummings a, a I mean just did everything but call him a thief talking about the billions of dollars that have been stolen out of that district of federal funds, where are the Republicans that have served long-term, I'm talking senior-ranking Republicans that have spent many years working with Chairman Cummings, where are the Republicans to stand up for your colleague when the president throws out all dignity when the president throws out all concepts of appropriate manner for the Oval Office by calling not just a congressman but a senior-ranking congressman from a state where you have a Republican governor that's highly respected, where are the Republicans backing up Elijah Cummings, which they should be doing? They absolutely should be doing, and they're not. And that, to me, is not only categorically just abhorrent, but at the same time, it just boggles my mind at a time when you should be working towards, when you talk about being a party of inclusivity, and you have this coming out of the Oval Office, and you don't defend Elijah Cummings, that to me says a lot. It shows that the Republican Party, the Republicans in the House have no spine, they have no backbone, and they're going to enjoy the minority until somebody shows some resemblance of political courage in, 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 in office, at least. Uh, I think. Yep. Go ahead. Go ahead. Rich Rubino, I'm going to give you the last word. Yeah, I think it's the Trumpization of the Republican Party. You look at these polls, and Donald Trump is at about 90% with the Republican Party. 90% of Republicans, you know, people say, well, he, there's not all Republicans like him, but 90% of Republicans support this president. And these, you know, congressmen are in, they're entrepreneurs for themselves more than they're, more than they're Republicans, more than any ideology, more than perhaps any friendship. Um, you know, the only Republicans that you see that actually have defended uh, Congressman Cummings, one of them, you know, they're people, that te- they're people that tend to be out of politics that probably aren't going to run for office. For example, the former lieutenant governor of Maryland, Michael Steele, who's also chairman of the Republican Party in Maryland, he came out and defended him. But anybody who's actually in office right now, um, you know, they are, they're very fearful of Donald Trump. You know, the Republican Party used to be the party, for example, of free trade. Remember that? Remember they were the party of free trade? They were part, um, now Donald Trump comes in, now they're the party of tariffs. Um, I think he's really changed and transmogrified the way the Republican Party thinks, what its ideology is. Yeah. And I think it's not necessarily even a Republican Party as much as it is the Trump Party. And the real question is, when Trump leaves office, because Trump's not going to be there forever, is it going to revert back to what it was before? Or is, in other words, is, is this just a Trumpization of the Republican Party? For example, when Bill Clinton was president, it's, it's um, the Democrats moved to the center, and you had the you had the you had the Democratic Leadership Council, the New Democrats. 
Now, for example, you know the Clintonization of their Democratic Party is pretty much over as most Democrats try to move to the left. The question is, when Donald Trump leaves, will right. they move back to where they were prior to Trump, or has Donald Trump really reinvented the Republican Party for you know perpetually? Right. That's what we'll have to see. It's yeah, it's it's all cyclical. But yeah, uh, this is not dying down anytime soon. Uh, it is, and by the way, kudos to uh, the folks in Baltimore. Uh, the city of Baltimore took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post calling out the president. Uh, the mayor of the mayor of Baltimore, uh, Bernard Young, uh, came out and basically called the president's comments completely unacceptable uh, to denigrate a vibrant American city like Baltimore. It, 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 it's not presidential. I don't, I don't care what party you are. This is not my Republican Party, and I don't care what party you are, what the president's done is everything but presidential. And the first one that comes to me after listening to this broadcast that says, well, he's shaking things up. I want to shake you like a rag doll. <laughs> anyway, that being said, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to try and get Dan Lipner's connection fixed up here. And, of course, Rich, we oh, we all love Rich Rubino. His connect, there's never a problem with his connection. Uh, we'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This is Back from Politics. I found him out, had a show down When I think of him, how much I love him I got a desperate notion That's the way I feel today My heart is aching Because he's making a plaything of my devotion That's the way I feel today Without any reason Or a word to say That man turned his keys in He packed and went away What good is living I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean That's the way I feel today
Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Yeah, I'm back. Hey, by the way, in case you haven't heard, uh, we've got uh, the former Democratic State Senator, Capri Cafaro, going to be joining us in the 530 hour. Uh, She's fantastic, fantastic addition. Uh, to our, our show today. So looking forward to that. Uh, on the line, we've got Rich Rubino. Hopefully we'll get Dan Lipner. Dan Lipner will be in the studio 5 o'clock hour. We'll just bank on that. I uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, the Mueller in, uh, hearings last week, but I want to point out something. Uh, I was I just flew back in today. I flew in from Atlanta this afternoon into Reagan, and my Uber driver that drove me home Uh is from Baltimore. He was working Reagan Airport and was hoping to get a fare back to Baltimore. And I asked him about the comments of the president regarding Baltimore. And he um, he just told me that, you know, it rolls off his back. He, he can't get upset by it because he used to let stuff like that get him all upset. He used to let comments like that get him all wound up. But he said to me, he says it would just it would just drive him insane. And yep, I said, well, yep. so what do you you know what what do you think? I mean, does if any goes the president's not necessarily wrong. Do we have problems in Baltimore? Yeah, of course. Is it is it dirty? Is it violent? Yeah, it it can be. Uh, are there rats? Yeah, but there's also as he pointed out, there's some big damn rats up in. Uh, uh, up in uh, Adams Morgan in Dupont Circle at two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, but you're going to stay on Capitol Hill. Uh, no, there there are some there too, but I have property value <laughs> issues there, so I don't want to ruin that. Uh, but you know, the, the the bottom line here is, you know, I don't want to. Uh, I, I I wanted to point out the fact that there's a lot of resiliency. There's a lot of uh, toughness with the folks in Baltimore, which I have to respect. And if more people, I guess if more people were like my, my driver today, uh, my friend who took me home from the airport, I, I think we'd be, the dialogue would be a lot more civil. The dialogue would be a lot more peaceful. There wouldn't be the demagoguery. And I got to tell you something, there's something to be said about that. Anyway, that being said, uh, let's move on. Dan Lipner, I believe, is back on the line. Dan, can you hear us? hear you can you hear me much better daniel much better anyway uh let's talk a little bit about in case you missed it last week the former employee of the department of justice and former uh special counsel investigating the russia probe uh one former fbi director robert Mueller, uh appeared before two committees in the house last week, uh, including 
the uh, House Judiciary and the House Intelligence Committee. A lot of ramp up, a lot of excitement, but... I know that's not an oxymoron. That's not not an oxymoron. There was a lot of ramp up, a lot of excitement, but eh, it was what it was. Uh, Dan Lipner, let me give you first swipe at this. Uh, A lot of people say that this was a disaster, that uh, Jerry Nadler pushed having Mueller appear before the committee, as did uh, Intelligence Committee Chairman... uh, uh, I, I lost his name. Dan, help me out here. Chef, Chef from California. They pushed this, pushed him, pushed him, and what they got was a big, huge pile of crap. Do you agree with that? No. Why? The people who are saying that are playing directly into Trump's hand, uh, uh, suggesting that everything that style matters over substance. And it has to be made for TV in order for it to matter, which is absurd. Now, it is true that some of the stuff was kind of torturous to go through because uh, Mueller had no desire at all to be there and pretty much insisted that any question he was asked, be if, for the first hearing especially, uh, for, the, for his judiciary, be cited directly to the Mueller report. If it weren't in the report, he weren't going to talk about it. So, and he declined to answer a whole bunch of questions that had nothing to do with the report. Enter the second part of the day in front of the Intelligence Committee. That, on the other hand, was a little bit different, um, where he did actually stray from the report a bit, including a couple editorial comments about the Russians interfering with the election, past and present tense. In addition to stating clearly that it was, quote, more than a little problematic that the president was not only uh, taking this support, but welcoming it. So, yeah, there was while there wasn't a whole lot of new news there, uh, there were there was plenty of stuff there to suggest that, yeah, this is a problem and it's still a problem so much so that the the uh, the Senate Majority Leader has now started to draw some ire for blocking uh, election protection bills that he is, he took to the Senate floor as a defense of himself because a talk show host has taken to calling okay. him Moscow Mitch. Well, okay, but hold on, hold on, hold on. But but let, let's go back. Same bill, Dan. Let's go back to the original point on this. Though is. Did, did did the Mueller testimony help the Democrats or did it help President Trump? Because I'll tell you right now, I watched about 80% of that. And what I saw didn't do the Democrats any favors in the eyes of the general electorate. If you've ever watched somebody take a deposition, it's boring as hell. This isn't a deposition, though, Dan. This is this is literally the this, this is, is all the, towards this, every congressional hearing is essentially a deposition. You're essentially de- the congressional record is a witness being deposed by multiple members of Congress. You mean to that tell me record is official? Do you mean to tell me, Dan, that you don't think that the that the Democrats slightly uh, overplayed their hand in this whole thing? 
it may have been slightly oversold that there is going to be uh, aha, I got you a moment. The is this not the crime that you saw? Uh, you know, thinking that this was an episode of Law and Order, where, this, where the witness was going to break on the stand. Well, were you, were you, were you expecting? Were you, ex- were you expecting like a doink doink at the end of his testimony? <laughs> I don't know if that, uh, the the bump bump. Yeah, that, that's uh, a doink doink. The folks in Law and Order, I think, go slightly higher production value. <laughs> <laughs> Rich Rapino, I mean, you've got to be looking at this the same way I do. Is <clears throat> this was hugely anticlimactic, and for yep. all the buildup and all the rigmarole, it you know every th- every time I I would sit there and I'd hear another, I'm not going to get into that, or I'm not going to address that, or it's addressed in the report. All I heard in the back of my mind was, wah, wah. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And depositions can be boring, and I guess this wasn't exactly a deposition. But I mean, that seems to be the, the extent of it was, I think, that they'd ask him a question, and he'd say, refer to the report, refer to the report, refer to the report. I think a lot of people are probably you know, either yawning or turning off the channel. It was very hard to watch him in many respects unless you're really into it, really tuned into this. Um, but in terms of what actually happened, the Republicans had a, were a lot better, I think, at public relations on this. Afterward, they, they, the president himself comes out, and um, members of Congress come out and immediately say, well, basically there was no collusion, there was no collusion, and um, they didn't say anything that the president had suggested, for example, that the Russians had interfered in the election, and that he thinks they're, right, they're interfering today as well. They're basically saying that there was no high crime here. And, um, you know, and I, think it helped the, I think it helped the Republicans in the sense that you still look at the polls and you still have a majority of the country that does not want impeachment proceedings to begin right now. And I think the fact that um, just they're winning the public relations battle, but also the fact that the Democrats, and I think, you know, Nancy Pelosi knows, you know, she comes from a very Democratic district, one of the most Democratic in the country, San Francisco. But she knows, and I think the reason that she's being so hesitant in terms of um, starting impeachment proceedings, she knows that the Democrats won in 2018 because of health care and because of jobs. And she knows that a lot of these Democrats do not want to be tied down and ask the question constantly, you know, what is your position on impeachment? What is your position on impeachment? She wants us to die down, and she also, I think, frankly knows that it's really a non-starter anyways, because if the, if, even if the Democratic con- Congress does, re- does, get, does decide that they're going to impeach the president, it's going to go to the United States Senate, the United States Senate run, run by Republicans, it's going to overwhelmingly, probably to a man, vote against it. So it's really kind of, it's really kind of a non-issue. I think Nancy Pelosi sees it as seen as political, but in terms of the actual testimony, I think that you know, the Republicans came out and talked about how awful it was. Um, that he, that how awful it was that you know we had to go through this report. Reminded me a lot of the Ken Starr report. I remember afterwards, um, you know, after after Ken Starr in terms of the Whitewater thing, the Democrats were talking about how this was a land deal that the Clintons lost money on, and the Republicans would come out and say that you know that we you know well we indicted we indicted Clinton's two business partners that are sitting governor of Arkansas, Jim Guy Tucker. So it's all based on perception, and in, in that case, the Democrats won on the Sorry, perception. Sorry, but Rich, case, Rich, hold on, Rich, on hold on, hold on, hold on. In, 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 you I, can I indict you. a ham sandwich, but in this case, people went to jail. But, but okay, well, and I well, see they went you're... to jail in that case too, though. In terms of, I mean, James McDougal, Susan McDougal, and Jim Guy Tucker was indicted, but he did not land up going, going land up going, getting arrested, and going to jail. All right, look, 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 look. I mean, the, the reality is, is that when we look at this, I mean, there were some high points. Let's be clear about that. Is you had the fact that Mueller came out and said the Russian hacking of our election yep. is yep. a huge national security issue 
and made that a huge point in the intelligence hearing. Dan Lipner, it, it seems to have fallen on deaf ears. Until it's spliced into a an ad, for example, against the president or any against the president's allies. And the president actually has political problems. Cory Gardner's up for re-election. Susan Collins is underwater. I mean, these are people that it's not necessarily a given to stick around with the president when their own political lives are in stake. Well, I mean, Rich Rubino, it, it seems to me that, you know, when when the guy who investigated the Russian hacking of our election and the involvement of possible or possible involvement of the president's campaign in in, in that whole scheme, he comes out and says, yeah, look, this is the greatest threat to our democracy. I would have thought that that would have been a headline. That would have been a talking point for everybody. And it just kind of fell flat. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Will Rogers' line is still correct. I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. That's true. <laughs> but but Richard Bino, why would that fall flat? And why wouldn't at least the Democrats try and run with that as a big talking point instead of just kind of letting it sit there? Yeah, I did hear. I think I did hear a few Democrats kind of say that on the periphery. But you're right. That would have been, I think, the perfect political strategy. But I really think that Nancy Pelosi is looking for an out here. I think she wants there to be a taint around the president, certainly, and she wants that to have deleterious effects on Republicans, on Democrats, on Republicans running for office. And Cory Gardner is a perfect example of that. Uh, one of them, you know, John Hinkelooper, who's running for president. If he doesn't do extremely, if he if he doesn't get to the, you know, the point where he can get into the second debate, he could very well drop out, and he could run against him. This is a former two-term governor of of Colorado, former two two-term oh, mayor two-term of Denver, governor. two-term governor, two-term mayor, um, very popular in the state, who could actually run against him. And then other dem- other Republicans you might see too. One of them is Susan Collins in Maine, who was, you know, a few, few years ago, prior to the Kavanaugh hearings, was at about seventy percent. In Maine, now she's one of the now other than Mitch McConnell, she's the most unpopular United States senator in in their home state, and she's up for re-election. She's another that potentially, you know, could leave could leave the president on this. But you're right, I don't think that um, I, I don't think that the Nancy Pelosi is really selling what you're saying is really selling it properly. Um, I think she just wants to get this over with. Dan Lipner, so Nancy, Nancy Pelosi selling it is so. I was a big fan of Nancy Pelosi's first round as speaker. Nancy's second round as speaker. She is being far more politically astute than last go around. And in part, that's because Nancy has figured out Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi being on camera is not good for the Democratic Party. So right. she is doing what the speaker should be doing, which is marshalling her troops and trying to keep the eye on the prize. And yeah, she has uh, three committees out there government oversight, judiciary, and the intelligence committees all doing their jobs as well which is overseeing both the threat to the country and this presidency. And they're going to continue doing it. And should we actually get to that point? I mean, Jerry Nadler's Judiciary Committee is currently fighting in court because the president is asserting executive privilege in places where executive privilege has never existed before. And the presumption is he's going to lose those fights and some other people are going to be forced to testify before Congress, and one of those aha, I gotcha moments could still be coming. 
but it's a long, methodical process. It doesn't just happen at the drop of a switch. Dan, where's that aha moment? I mean, how long do we have to wait for the aha moment? Did, did we did we know that the Nixon tapes had the what did the president know and when did he know it moment when he okayed the, the payments? We don't know. We don't know where that moment is going to come that the public is going to go, Whoa, Kimosabi, this is not going to work for I can't us. Believe, I can't believe I'm going to take a position that might sound actually defending the president and the Republicans on this. Uh, okay, Dan, it, it's, been, it's been literally two years. And, you know, not to use the talking points of the GOP, but it's been two years. We've, you know, got the report. I, I concur that everybody should read the report. I concur with the Mueller findings that, uh, in fact, you know, he did not have any authority to draw up charges against the uh, against the president. That's a DOJ policy, and I think he was right to make that comment. But after two years, and then you hype up this hearing like this is it. This is the smoking gun. They didn't even have a gun. It, it to me, it, it is not, that that was. Not- Again, there's a difference between what the media is doing and what was done in that hearing. Mueller is also very definitively on the record when the president said, I was completely exonerated in the Mueller report. Nope. Mueller is now on the record very clearly stating that ain't so. So the the idea that this president is a liar is kind of a given amongst people who are not his supporters. Rich Rubino, but how about the Republicans saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, you don't have the authority to uh, not exonerate because there's no authority to exonerate. Is, is, that, is that an argument that literally America is going to buy into? Uh, it sounds very legalistic. It sounds. Um, it, it, it's, I don't garbage. it's garbage. It's garbage. No, but, but I mean, it sound, that's what I'm saying. It sounds very legalistic. But you know what, though, this country is so divided right now in terms of whether they support the president or oppose the president, and everyone's getting confirmation bias and they're getting news that they want to get that they want that that it, that validates the point that they've had, but they've had beforehand. Of whether they pre-formulated whether they like the president or they don't like the president. So I don't think that there's really that many persuadable voters in the middle that are really thinking, well, let me look at this fairly. And then, you know, I just think it's I just think it's all about galvanizing both both parties bases right now. And the Democrats part, it's about how bad it's about how bad Trump is. And it's about certainly, um, you know, they're going to say they're, they're going to say that, that Robert Mueller did not exonerate. And they're going to say that the Russians were involved in the Republican side. They're going to say, like, like, you know, like that woman in Congressman Am- Amish's district in Michigan. They asked her and she said, well, I didn't know there was anything bad in the, toward the president in the Mueller report because all the information she's getting is from sources that are sympathetic to the president. I think that's where we've come as a country where people are just getting the information from sources that they agree with anyways, and there are very few people in the middle that are really, gonna, you know, that are really listening to this judiciously and they're really listening to this fairly. I, I mean, the, the one... Well, it's not quite true. You can't quite compare Fox News and the even more right-wing crazy outlets are it's not a one-to-one comparison to anything on the left so i mean yeah that woman is a problem because yeah that stuff is not even news it's all commentary being gone after and that completely overlooks anything resembling facts right and she actually and that woman actually admitted afterward they said where'd you get your information from and she gets i guess she said essentially i get all my information from conservative sources 
I mean, she actually she actually specifically said that. I will say that there are people on the left. You know, if you watch, but, if you watch, I guess I guess what would be the equivalent be a Fox News or the right wing? I guess you could say maybe Democracy Now, something to that effect. I don't know. Yeah, but but yeah, here's the thing: Turks, I think, might be the the, the closest yeah. to the yeah. left wing media. But even then, they try and couch their stuff in facts. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's arguable. I, mean, I, I, try, I watch it; I can't stand it. But they at least do resemble something something resembling facts. That's arguable. Well, I will say this: I will say this about Fox News, though. For all the opinion pieces, and I, I agree, I can't watch it from eight o'clock on. If you watch special report from six to seven with Brett Baer, um, and you watch some of the reports, I actually think they do try to be they do try to be somewhat objective on that show. Um, once you get well, to the opinion, actual journalist. Once, yeah, yeah, and Brett, Brett Bear is one, and Chris Wallace is another who does this, who does the weekend show. When they're on there, I actually think it's like you, it's network. It's what you can see on any other network. Now, once it gets to eight o'clock, once you see, once you see Sean Hannity, once you see Laura Ingram, then you're essentially getting viewing two people who agree with the host, and they're talking about how right the host is. And it didn't used to be like that. And, I remember it used and, to be and, Sean and Hannity way, and Alan Combs on. And by the way, the left has the left had the same thing with Rachel Maddow. And, oh, absolutely. I mean, in, no, in their prime time. No, it's not the same thing. Rachel, oh, come on. Again, you, have, you actually have to do a one-to-one comparison. And Rachel Maddow will actually bring on real deal Republicans to actually debate issues and will go into the substance of the issues and will not just sit there and deal with the rhetorical flurry of the nonsense. Yes, there is the nonsense chattering class on the left, but at least when the – the left commentary still tries to couch things yeah. in something resembling substance. Uh, you know, I will say even Tucker Carlson with Sean Hannity and Laura Ingham don't do. Tucker Carlson will have some people on at least to disagree with them. You watch Sean Hannity when he I say it used to be Sean Hannity and Alan Combs. Alan Combs was liberal. Sean Hannity was conservative. When Alan Combs left that program, Fox said, you know, it's a marketing ploy. We're just going to give Sean Hannity a full hour now. And now if you watch his show, he'll get two or three guests on that just essentially agree with what he says. And folks like Lindsey Graham will come out and defend the president, score at the Democrats, and he immediately gets on Sean Hannity's show. And now you see him at 71% with Republicans in South Carolina. And, you know, two years ago, right when, when Donald Trump was first elected, there was, he was in danger of, being, of not winning re-election, right. the potential that he could have well, a primary opponent. Now, because in part of going on Sean Hannity's show, he seen as a tribune of Donald Trump and the Republican Party, and there's no part, major primary challenge. Well, that, that being the case, that being the case, uh, we're I, the the uh, the bottom line here. Dan Lipner is, I mean, the big big issues that we already knew about. You know, when Mueller said that the president's encouragement of WikiLeaks were problematic. When uh, the president's written answers were generally untruthful, this is all stuff that was in his report. We didn't get that smoking gun yet again, and for all the hype, you know, it's one thing to overmarket. There's there's a joke that I, I was told, and I don't know if it's true, but in this case, it's relevant that supposedly an advisor to uh, Dwight David Eisenhower as president came into the Oval Office with a report. The president looked at it and said, and said, oh my God, this is amazing. Our people need to read this. To which the advisor responded promptly, Mr. President, our people don't read. And if they did read, they wouldn't be our people. 
<laughs> that, that actually, I have to repeat, I have to say this, that reminds me of Boss Tweed. Boss Tweed, there was, a, there was a newspaper that would go after Boss Tweed just maliciously, and he never said anything about him. And one time they had a political cartoon about Boss Tweed, and Boss Tweed that time actually talked to the editor of the paper. He said, you know, my constituents don't care. You can write whatever you want. My constituents can't read. But they sure can read that. Can you look at that cartoon? Wow. Okay. That being the case, uh, we we're gonna we're we're gonna end this this episode. Uh, hopefully, we'll get our technology back in order for the next episode because that was all over the place. Rob, the engineer, uh, not our not our not our best technologically. I think you'd agree. Three <laughs> under the proverbial bus, Dan. On behalf of Dan Lipner, Rich Rubino. Obviously, our mega star, uh, and I'll explain that in another episode. But uh, Rob, the engineer, Eric, our uh, our producer, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We'll see you for the next edition of the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics. Stay with us, everybody. We'll see you on the next next round. Bye bye. <laughs>